0: Welcome to BioCitizen Banter, a podcast dedicated to environmental philosophy, featuring lively discussions between people active in the effort to bring biotic health and diversity to our communities and commonwealth.
1: Hello, this is Ursa, director of BioCitizen New York. This week, our podcast features an interview with Leela Higgins by the co-director of BioCitizen LA, Benny Jacob schwartz Leela is the senior manager of community science at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles, Founder of City Nature Challenge and author of the widely acclaimed urban ecology resource Wild LA. Alrighty, folks. Welcome to our BioCitizen podcast series. I'm your host today, Benny Jacob Schwartz. And today we got the chance to catch up with an amazing role model and spokesperson for the natural world, Leela Higgins. Leela Higgins is the senior manager of community science here in Los Angeles at the Natural History Museum. So how are you doing, Leela? Thanks so much for joining us.
0: I'm great. uh, Sitting in my parents' uh, living room in the Inland Empire. I'm not currently living in Los Angeles, which is very odd, um, but still working.
1: Yeah, you're uh, living the quarantine life and working from home?
0: Living the quarantine life, telecommuting, um, while living with my parents as a (laughs) (laughs) 40-year-old.
1: Nice. Yeah, that's a... I've got a lot of questions for that, but that's probably a separate podcast. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) So for our listeners,
1: do you want to maybe share a little bit about yourself and kind of what your role is in terms of community science and natural history museum?
0: Sure. So I have been at the natural history museum for uh, almost 11 years in December, it'll be 11 years. And I am the senior manager for community science, what some people call citizen science. Um, we changed the name a couple of years ago um, to be more inclusive. Um, you know, citizen is a hot button issue and word uh, here right. in the U.S., especially in California. And as a non-citizen of this country myself, I understand that to a certain extent, um, albeit with a lot of white privilege in there, too. Sure. And our community members came to us and said they wanted us to change the name and our president of the museum uh, was wanting to change the name and our county supervisors were interested in us changing the name. And so we, we worked to change the name and and that's been, I think, a very positive thing for us. Um, but some people might not know what community or citizen science means. And basically it's uh, getting the general public involved in answering scientific questions um and our questions at the museum are about what's happening with nature in los angeles
1: awesome well i'm gonna circle back to that because i want to hear more about that but i want to hear a little bit more about kind of your background and kind of how you got kind of started on nature so a lot of our um audience sometimes are you know young students that's basically our demographic we just started offering um some family ecology walks in la but you know for a lot of kids they're kind of tradition we had kind of one track jobs be a lawyer be a doctor kind of these very kind of typical type jobs so you know how did you become so passionate about nature and kind of what set you on the path that you're on now?
0: So I grew up on a farm in England um, and my parents were Hare Krishnas so it was definitely not a uh, very different childhood growing up than a lot of kids that I'm friends with here in, in America. First of all, it was in another country, uh, in the middle of the countryside, um, literally down a lane from in a tiny village. And so down a lane next to an old mental hospital. Um, and so I got to like play outside all the, all the day long and would pretend to be a badger inside of a hollow tree and chase butterflies to see where they would go and, you know, build tree houses and, and all of that kind of stuff. So that's how I learned to love nature. Um, And then I had a science teacher who, he kind of looked a little bit like Einstein. He had that really kind of messy hair and would wear like a velvet bow tie and a tweed jacket with those elbow patches. And he was like Leela you're really good at science. You should study science. Yeah, that should be what you, you know, choose because in England you have to choose when you're fairly young what what you're going to study for your exams.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And so I I was like, "Cool, I I like science. I love nature." Um, I really remember being struck by seeing a dead rabbit on the side of uh the lane that I lived on and every day off to school I'd see it in its various states of decay and then I remember seeing like the grass be much darker green where the rabbit had died Ooh. and and that really like like cycle of life really stuck with me wow. um yeah and then I also remember accidentally killing some bumblebees which <laughs> I always apologize to these bumblebees I was observing them uh, I put some glasses over them while I was out in the garden, they were visiting some of the daisies in the lawn. I put some glasses over them to observe and then I got called into lunch and then I came back after lunch and I accidentally cooked them. Oh no. Yeah, Yeah, I feel really sad. I still feel sad about that. But I also feel like it was a very powerful moment for me um, realizing my actions have consequences. Sure and like very deep consequences, like those bumblebees lives no longer existed. And so I think that that was very impactful. And then when I moved to the US, I continued to do science. And then I also had like massive nature shock when I moved to the US when I was 14. Uh It was like, what is going on? Everything's so green in like the summertime in England. And I moved in like February to Southern California and you know it was getting starting to get warm and I don't think it was that super rainy year that year and there was all these dry hillsides that were gray green and brown and it looked so dead to me Mm -hmm. and so I had to learn how to see my environment in a whole new way.
1: Yeah I can imagine you know being totally immersed in nature right so you were it sounds like you were not living separate from it right like a lot of us in Los Angeles live in very urban areas in our quite separate and so nature is kind of this novel other experience and so it sounds like you know having the juxtaposition of where you used to live and kind of coming to LA was uh you know I'm sure it was quite the nature shock.
0: Yeah living on a farm you kind of can't help that the the farmer raised sheep and I remember we would get taken away when they were slaughtering the animals yeah we grew up we were Harry Christian so we grew up vegetarian so we didn't eat um you know, the sheep that were being slaughtered there. But, and I think my dad was just like, uh, yeah, we're, we're taking, we would, I didn't really remember this, but like, I remember getting told later. So we would get taken away and you can't, you can't not see nature up close and death up close, like on a farm environment with like, you know, foxes attacking or roadkill, or the rabbit that I saw on the side of the road that was dead, and not kind of be closer to nature.
1: Sure. So, since moving to LA, what are some of the other hats that you've worn, um, whether directly related to nature or not? I saw you're on the board for um, another nonprofit about land use. You want to share some of your the other hats that you've worn?
0: Uh, Yeah, so I'm a board member for a smaller nonprofit called From Lot to Spot, uh, which takes vacant lots uh, in the community and working with the community, come up with a plan for how that vacant lot, that vacant space will get used, whether that's a um, playground or a community garden or a native plant garden or, you know, whatever it is that the community is looking for, Um, but outdoor space often, you know, planted green space places that are safe for kids to play. Um, and I was a pr- approached to be on the board and hundred percent feel like my service there is very ma- meaningful and powerful. Um, you know, I came from England as a white person with a lot of privilege and a British accent and wearing glasses and, you know, a lot of doors are automatically opened, uh, when you have privilege like that, and working with um, Viviana, who's the executive director from lot to Spot, you know there's a lot of communities that don't get advantages, especially when it comes to outdoor space and um, green space and wildlife in the city. And so it's definitely a, a act of service, and you know, and and Viviana appreciates my you know science background and the and the nature background and. She is not a huge fan of insects, but uh, she she uh, she likes them a little bit more because she knows she sees how much I'm how passionate I am about them. Um, but it's yeah, it's a really awesome, amazing organization. I'm honored to to work with them um, and encourage everyone to 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 make a donation. They do really good, valuable and powerful work for the community.
1: That's excellent. So how do they decide or did, are they like, how do they decide which lots they should use and kind of, I don't know if you could share briefly what that process is and how do they decide what they're going to do with it?
0: Um, so it's super dependent uh, on land that's available or land that needs to be, you know, used. So Back in the day when Viviana really started this, I think she was in grad school, um, and there the, the, the new that 105 freeway was going in, uh-huh. and so it really like split the community that she was living down. I think it's Lynwood. Um, I could be getting the name of the neighborhood wrong, but it split the community, and then it also created some you know weird like pockets of space that that uh, sometimes pockets of space like alleyways can sometimes get, uh, you know, trashed and there'll be junk there and it maybe isn't a safe place for kids to play. And so when those spaces get transformed through working with the community and asking the community and being part of the community, not just coming in and saying, this is what you need, but, uh, you know, working with the community and say, this is, what, what is it that you want? What, what are the needs, what are your needs? Um, and then spending that time and effort and um, money on like equipment, playground equipment, or plants, or whatever the the need is for that area, it really changes um, the perception and the use of the space.
1: That's excellent, and I think that's a really effective approach. I think early on, a lot of kind of NGO and nonprofit you know, where they're doing civil service or community support, oftentimes it's kind of this like top-down perspective, mm. you know, thinking about what the community needs. And, you know, there's countless stories of, you know, how those situations went awry. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's really refreshing and obviously awesome to hear that, you know, community knows what they need. So better, better ask them than just kind of decide for yourself because you think that that's going to look cool or that's going to get you grant funding.
0: Right. And I think that that's, all because this organization is run by people of color. I happen to be a white person on the board, but uh, most of the staff and many of the board members are people of color. And if you're from the community and you have a nonprofit working in the community, you're not gonna just go in and be like, this is what you need. Um, You're going to listen and you already have listened because you're part of the community. And so I think that that's just advice that I try to take myself and things that I do. It's good to listen instead of talk when you're working with communities.
1: Absolutely. So diving into that word community. So um, you recently published an amazing resource for our community here in Los Angeles called The Wild in L.A., Um, and it's just amazing. I've, you know, I pride myself as a strong naturalist and, you know, I know a couple of things, but I've learned so much through your book. Um, And I find it just an amazing resource and laid out in a super digestible and accessible way. Um, So first off, you know, thank you so much for your, you know, championing that book and making it happen. Um, So I was kind of curious what prompted you to, you know, to write it and delve into it.
0: So um, I've always been interested in urban nature after a friend who lived in Boston when I lived out there started to run these urban nature walks and I was like oh yeah we need to love the nature in the city you know just as much maybe sometimes if not more than in the natural sorry quote-unquote more wild or natural places sure um because you know there's a lot of impacts on nature and wildlife in the city and when I started working at the museum we worked on this nature garden project, which is a three and a half acre outdoor space around the museum. Um, and then we also worked on another exhibit called the nature lab. Uh-huh. And I was like one of the education like, content people for both of those exhibits. And, the, and the, the garden was a place where people could go out and experience nature up close and personal. We didn't want to have too many signs because we wanted people to really like not be you know distracted from the actual nature that they get to see and have to read a bunch of signs. Sure. Also, when you go to a museum, you have this thing called museum fatigue because you're like paying so much directed attention. And so when you're in nature, you can use your fascinated attention and and kind of like help you to be less tired. Mm-hmm. Um, so we then we also decided to work on this nature lab, which is an indoor exhibit that kind of helps to tell the stories of the wild nature in L.A., um, and we had a lot of amazing content that we wanted to share so many stories from our curators from our educators from the general public stories about amazing wildlife and you know there's only so much room in in an exhibit space I think the nature lab is about 6,000 square feet so you only have so much room to tell this story and then we're like well, we've got all these stories, we should put them into a book. Writing a book will be easy, right? (laughs) Uh Um, It was not. It was a long, arduous, but beautiful process. And so that's kind of how the Wild LA book came into existence.
1: That's so cool. And so you talk about the arduous journey, you know, roughly how long did it take it from kind of conception to, to printing?
0: From conception to printing was about five years, but um, you know we weren't writing a lot at the very beginning. We you know, had some meetings and then decided that uh, we were going to do this. Um, but it, again, it was probably about four years of of writing and field trips and and things like that.
1: That's awesome. And was the Natural History Museum immediately supportive and kind of gave you guys the green light and supported you on your quest?
0: It was really an initiative that kind of came out of um, leadership at the museum. So it wasn't like, I'm going to write this book. Will you support me, museum? Uh It was more like, we should work on a book. And you're interested in this, right, Leela? Um, And, you know, I obviously was. I'd been writing a blog for the museum called nature in LA. Mm -hmm. And I'd been posting a blog post every single week, which now I'm like, how did I manage to do a blog every week? I definitely don't have time for that. And, you know, I go go back and read some of the original blog posts and I was like, start cringing who let me publish this. Uh, But it really helped me to develop um, my writing skills and develop my voice and to learn you know, and really like hone in on like the voice of our museum for specifically nature stories. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there, you know, there are some parts of the book that are kind of taken straight from some of those blog posts. Um, But of course, you know, we did field trips in the book and we did the 101 species. And then we did like some introductory chapters about why nature is the way it is in LA. Um, And of course, a lot of that wasn't what, was in that blog post or what was attended for the nature lab exhibit. So it was a lot of, a lot of new writing went into the book.
1: Sure. Um, so on reflecting on this, you know, this massive task, what are some things that you learned when you were working on your book that you, you know, maybe didn't think about ahead of time. And then you're like, Oh dang.
0: Um, that it's a, it's a kind of like marathon and not a sprint. You've really got to pace yourself. Uh huh. I, was lucky enough to be able to take two days a week to work from home because writing is is kind of uh, a very different type of work than than what I normally do at the museum. I do a lot of uh you know have uh, planning documents for programs and meeting with staff about programs we're going to to deliver and collaborating and 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 that but writing is really like a very solo activity yeah um and it's, you need a lot of time and space to concentrate. And so being able to work from home to do that was really needed, but it also was very difficult to try and get the regular workload of five days worth of work done in three days a week. Um, so it definitely wasn't easy, uh, but it has been very, very rewarding. It's also you know, working with multiple different co-authors is challenging, um, especially if you have differing opinions on certain parts and pieces.
1: Uh-huh. Uh,
0: the main co-author, Greg Pauly, and I, you know, we went, we went through some struggles. We, we, quote, we talk about it how we went through a work divorce and then we got work back together. Um, uh-huh. And I was just on a meeting with him before this podcast and like, it's really, it's really nice to be able to kind of make back up after having, having struggles. Uh, but, you know, writing is not always easy. Um, and especially when you're working on a, a big project like this and you have all this other work to do. Uh, you know, I can't, couldn't just devote all my, you know, work hours to writing the book. I had to do a lot of other things at the same time. Keep a lot of other programs going.
1: Sure. And I imagine even just for your own kind of mental balance, having kind of your head in different spaces allows you potentially to return a little bit refreshed and kind of, I don't know, focus when it is your writing days. I know, you know, when I'm working on solo projects and, you know, just on those things, sometimes I can kind of get stuck in my own thoughts. And when I step back and, you know, participate in other work, it allows me to come back to my work refreshed and a little bit more focused. So, you know, I don't know if that helped or hurt your progress or whatever, but, you know.
0: Yeah. I, I, I really loved, I took some camping trips with friends and like left on like Thursday night or Friday and then worked at a campground writing. Um, You know, obviously on days when I didn't need to go on the internet to do research, but you know, sometimes you're like the the internet could be a great resource for research, but it can also be a massive distraction. Um, And so I was in the Eastern Sierra camping I went to Catalina, not Catalina. I went to Santa Cruz Island and wrote. um, And so both places that aren't featured in the book, but beautiful natural spaces and writing about nature in them was really lovely.
1: Yeah, I imagine it helps you kind of get into the flow and kind of find that voice. You know, when you're so far removed, you're kind of writing from, you know, the environment that you're, you're in. And so I imagine immersing yourself in those, you know, beautiful spaces like St. Cruz Island or the Sierra um, definitely help you kind of craft that voice in a really I don't know in a way that listeners and readers want to they want to be there with you
0: yeah I think you know there it's it, they're very different places than where we we're writing about for LA you know obviously for wild LA it's very urban um, like focus uh, and those the two places, That I mentioned just now are much more kind of quote-unquote wilderness areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was an interesting juxtaposition too. Um,
1: I love that. So, Wild LA is pretty wild. I mean, from a kind of layman's perspective, or most people living in LA, you know, they might have heard the parrots or heard about a couple different things, but there really is so much to explore in this book. Um, And so for our listeners, what are two trips or two of your favorite trips that you include in the book that you would recommend for folks? Maybe one that's like a close one that you could do for a day, um, like a half day or whatever. And then another one that's maybe like a little bit farther away, like in the San Gabriel's or something.
0: Um, So I really love Arlington garden in Pasadena. Uh Uh, I think it's like South Pasadena and they, it's, I had never been there before. Uh, this is one of the only places that I had never been. Um, most of the field trips we wanted to have, like some of us have some general knowledge about it from throughout the entire year. So we could, you know, we went on a field trip to each one of the um, locations we picked. But, you know, you're only getting a snapshot from like a few hours in one day. Of course. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we could tell people what what's the best time of year to go. Um, So I'd actually never been to Arlington gardens and I've been back many times since it's a beautiful little uh, garden with like what I would call garden rooms that you can explore. There's lots of seating. Um, There's lots of uh, trees um, to like relax and contemplate underneath. There's like a labyrinth uh, there and it's, just a lovely space to kind of go and explore or to go and sit and like meditate and be in nature. Um, Obviously with social distancing right now, uh, I think the gardens are still open, but uh, you know, I I think that they like removed the seating so you can't like sit, but you can walk through the garden. Um, So I, I would recommend people checking out Arlington Gardens for a close by trip um and then for a little bit further afield we've got uh Mount Baldy mm-hmm. and i mentioned that one because i'm literally in the foothills of Mount Baldy uh San Gabriels um right now this is right on the edge of LA County and San Bernardino County and um it's once the trails get back open it's a great place to go and uh take a hike um there's a really cool, like, tavern, but you can see Mount Bighorn Sheep up there. Yeah. And when we, when we went on the field trip, the, we got to see Bighorn Sheep up there. That's insane. And we were at the base of the um, ski lift. And i had been up there so many times because I went to high school in this area. And I'd never seen Bighorn Sheep. And we parked in the parking lot. And then we hear this, like, smashing sound. Uh-huh. And across the valley on the other like slope from the mountain right next to us we could see two male bighorn sheep headbutting each other and you could the sound we were hearing was their horns smashing together. And yeah. it was epic.
1: Yeah, I think I read in your book or some other resource that you can hear that that crashing like up to a mile away or something.
0: Yeah, it's loud.
1: Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, that's really cool. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I haven't been to Arlington. Um, I have been to Baldy, but I have not yet gone up there to uh, look for bighorn sheep. Maybe uh, later this month or as, it, as the snow kind of melts up there, I'll get to go scope out. And,
0: for- yeah, A- and when we're allowed to go out and be in public.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, cool. So, um, Maybe one more thing I was thinking about, about observation. So what's one of the most unexpected or exciting observations you've had recently?
0: Um, Me personally or a community scientist? Um,
1: Yeah, well, let's dive into that. So community science, what is it? What does it mean? How can we participate? And uh, we'll start there.
0: Uh, so community science, again, what some people call citizen science is when people from the general public, um, work with scientists to answer real world questions and our real world questions at the museum are all about nature in LA. And we want to know, um, what's happening, what new species may be coming in, what, uh, species already exist here. And, um, yeah, we, we engage people from all over the city and county.
1: That's awesome. So a couple of ones that I um, read about in your, your amazing book, Wild, Wild LA, um, there's a couple of ongoing community science projects, one of which is Rascals about reptiles and amphibians in Southern California. Um, there's like a bio scan, which seems to be kind of a general um, scan for insects in Los Angeles. Um, you guys also have slime for snails and slugs living in the metropolitan environments. Um, the LA spider survey. Um, and the one that I thought was most fascinating just because I don't know that much about them was the Southern California squirrel survey. Um, that is so cool.
0: Yeah. So we, a lot of our projects are on, um, iNaturalist, which is a free app that you can download to your smartphone, whether that's an Android or a, um, Apple device, and you can make you can take pictures or upload sound, even, and wow. that becomes evidence for um, scientists, but also anyone to access. Anyone can download the data, so it's it's open source, which is wow. great. Um, and so, a lot of our projects are on iNaturalist. So we've got the reptiles and amphibians project, Rascals, the snail and slug project, Slime, the Southern California squirrel survey. They just started a roly-poly project. Really? Um, uh, Yes. They literally just uh, started a roly-poly project um, with our people in our marine biodiversity center. Um, And I don't know if you knew, but roly-polies are terrestrial isopods. So like closely related to crabs and lobsters.
1: Yeah, I actually didn't know that, but it is a surprising fact. You think, you know, you just see them mucking around and crawling around under rock like under rocks and kind of damp soil. But yeah, it's uh, they kind of yeah. look uh, like ki- like chitons, I think, or limpets.
0: Yes, they do look a lot like the chitons. Um and I love the way they look and I, and they're studying for this reptile uh, not reptile amphibian project for the roly-poly project. Um, the roly polies that have uh, a virus um, which turns them blue
1: whoa not like a like actually blue or kind of like that kind of ghostly gray
0: uh no it's definitely more of a blue like almost like electric blue like but with a grayish blue sheen to it wow
1: um and so I was also reading some of The amazing benefits of community science. So when we're studying a big, basically a big area that's not kind of completely natural, so to speak, like, you know, wide swaths, like if we were surveying in Sequoia, it'd be easy, you know, field biologists go out there, they'd use their, you know, field sampling methods, whether they're studying bats or insects or birds or dendrology or whatever, you know, they go survey the area. But in places like urban Los Angeles, where we have so much private land ownership and fragmented habitat and such a huge area, answering that question can be super difficult. So what are some kind of recent, I guess, discoveries that have happened in terms of the community science front here in Los Angeles?
0: Um, So during the City Nature Challenge, which is a project global project that we just finished, L.A., we made some amazing discoveries in L.A. And uh, over the whole of Southern California, we got 13 records of alligator lizards mating. Wow. Yeah. And so this is their mating behavior that happens every time in the spring. Um, And it's something that our herpetologist, Dr. Greg Pauley, has literally never seen himself. And he's a herpetologist and he goes out all the time and he's never seen alligator lizards mating.
1: Wow. That's so, that's so interesting because I was reading that section about where the male will basically clamp on kind of the side or the back of the head of the female. um, And they'll sometimes stay adjoined for what I read was about an hour or up to 24 hours. Yes. And just, just actually last week I, I saw one alligator lizard in my backyard. And then the day after that, I saw a male latched onto the side of the head of a female scurry by and then back under the, under the plants in my yard. Oh,
0: but you didn't get a picture
1: I didn't get a picture no they were too fast
0: well that's that is a shame but it's also understandable it's sometimes it's really hard to to get behavior evidence of behavior because you are it's you know it's short-lived and so that's one of the great things about the um project is that uh you know Greg is able to crowdsource this data set. He himself has not seen this. There's only like three observations or records of alligator lizard mating in the scientific literature. But through this project, he has been able to collect hundreds of observations in Southern California and also in Northern California. And so now he can start asking and answering questions with this crowdsourced data set that he just couldn't do in the past.
1: That's so exciting. Um, And I also read that there was also community, like, uh, community scientists here in L.A. also discovered a couple um, new species of other herbs. Like, I think it was a Mediterranean gecko um, and another gecko that had been seen um, in North County.
0: So, yeah, they were not brand new to science, but they were new records for Los Angeles. Uh So um, they're introduced species, and we didn't know that they existed here until like the first one was the Mediterranean house gecko. And that was discovered by um, Will Bernstein and his son, Reese Bernstein at uh, Reese, who at the time I think was 11. And it's pretty amazing that uh, they are now co-authors on the scientific paper that talks about that gecko being found in LA for the first time.
1: That's so cool. So that's definitely, uh, since kind of reading your book, um, BioCitizen is in the times of kind of this quarantine period. We just, just rolled out, um, basically a new kind of curriculum of online lessons. Um, mm-hmm. uh, my, I'm going to be teaching wildlife and ecology of California. And then my coworker and co-director will be teaching kind of a time machine of or time machine of Los Angeles, where we basically kind of, go back through historic periods in the development of Los Angeles, starting off with kind of, um, you know, first people's living on this landscape almost exclusively, and then moving into like the Pueblo times and so on and so forth, you know, to current times and looking forward. Um, and one of the sections that I'll be teaching on is about community science. Um, and, uh, I put together a short little video about the LA city nature challenge. Um, so I just wanted to, you know, maybe get you to speak a little bit about it since you founded the overall City Nature Challenge and kind of what are the updates for this year and, you know, how do people participate in coming years?
0: Um, yeah, so this is the fifth annual City Nature Challenge. Um, we started in 2016 as a competition between LA and San Francisco, which city can find the most nature. Nice. Um, yeah, it was super fun and we you know we were like what can we do that we will both want to do my, my, the co-founder uh and i allison young who works at cal academy and then her um co-director up there rebecca johnson we were like what what can we we want to do something and it'd be great if other people participate but even if they don't we can do it together just us um but that first year was really successful and we got over 10,000 observations in both cities. Wow. Um, yeah, so, and then other cities around the country were like, we want to do it too. How can we take part? Uh, and so that next year it was 16 cities across the U.S. Wow. And um, uh, it was 16 cities across the U.S. And then it went to, I think, 50 or so cities around the world. And then like 160... Last year, and now 244 cities this year.
1: Wow! How many cities are left?
0: <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. I don't have the count of cities in the world, but it's a lot more than 244. Um, but this year, because of the pandemic, we had to make it, and we we didn't want it to be a competition because that was just going to be very that wasn't going to work. Um, so we made it a collaboration and a celebration of nature, you know, the healing power of nature and What can we all do together and what can we find in our own backyards or neighborhoods or porch lights um, based on how, how little access we have really to being outdoors right now.
1: And does that seem like it, uh, you, I was just looking at the data that you posted. It looks like even despite the restrictions and kind of movement and ability to observe and, you know, Widespread areas throughout the city. It still seems like the number of observations this year were substantially higher than last year.
0: So the number of observations were a little bit lower. We had uh, just over nine 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 and a half uh, thousand. Sorry, nine hundred fifty thousand observations last year. So close to a million. And this year we had eight hundred fifteen thousand observations. So we had less observations, but we documented more species and more people took part. Um, we had about 41,000 people take part. And last year it was 32,000. So that was, that was unexpected. Um, and I think it really speaks to the fact that there were a lot of people who, you know, are stuck inside or stuck in their own neighborhoods or backyards and, and wanted something to do. And especially when we're going through tough times, being able to connect to nature is very healing for us. And, uh, connecting to nature and doing the city Nature challenge. So you're like collecting data for science. So you're volunteering as well as connecting to nature. So it's sometimes it makes people feel doubly good. Yeah.
1: So would you, would you say that during the times of quarantine, there's nothing better that someone could be doing to take care of themselves than by participating in iNaturalist and uh, sharing their observations in their neighborhoods?
0: Uh, I don't know if I'd say that 100% I feel that you know it's a Maslow hierarchy of needs and our basic human needs of uh you know having being, need getting food and um having security uh, around you and then having like physical security with with people around you those are the I think that's the the first kind of level of needs and so if you're lucky enough to have those needs being met, then maybe taking part in the city nature challenge uh, is something that you would want to do but if if you're struggling uh, like many people are right now and worried about finances or um or maybe you were homeless beforehand, then you know taking part in the city nature challenge isn't going to be like one of your number one yes. number one priorities but but being in nature, it has been proven to um, lower our blood pressure and uh, lower our heart rate, um, lower our cortisol levels, um, increase our overall sense of well-being, and you know we get vitamin D from the sun, which boosts our immunity. And when we're outside and around trees and plants, we breathe in the phytochemicals that they release, and that also increases our um, immunity.
1: Wow, that's amazing. Um, Well, that's, that's really excellent. And I just wanted to, you know, say thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us and share all of your amazing knowledge. And again, thank you for putting in the hard work to, to uh, produce Wild LA. Um, I actually had purchased this book prior to deciding to interview you for this, for this series. Um, And my director, Jesse was like, hey, you should you should check out Lila Higgins. I was like, Lila Higgins. I feel like I know that name. I was (laughs) literally reading her book right now. So it couldn't have been better timing. So just want to say thank you so much for all the work that you continue to do. And uh, it's been really great getting to chat with you.
0: Thanks. Thanks so much. It's been great chatting with you too.
1: Awesome. Well, take care Lila and uh, happy listening folks. We'll talk to
0: you next time. Bye everyone.